Would you all pray with me? Our Father, I uh, just thank you for these moments. I thank you for this Sunday morning. I thank you for these people. Lord, I pray that um, just over the next few minutes and over this hour or so that we're together, that your, your Holy Spirit be at work in us, like I've already asked repeatedly this morning, your Holy Spirit would be at work in us, that their gospel would be uh, made known to, to our hearts, that your good news would be made known to our hearts. Lord, through, through everything that we do, the gospel will be proclaimed as we preach the word, as we sing the songs, as we serve one another communion, as we serve in different roles and capacities around the church, as we proclaim Jesus to our, our kids and, and participate in all these different places. I just pray that as we gather this morning as a family, and it would just be evident that we're together because of Jesus Christ and because of the good news of what he's done and that he's united us through him to you, our Father. Lord, I pray that you would... Uh, speak to each one of us, have us hear what you'd have us hear, and move in our hearts. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Like we're all looking forward to that new creation where there'll be no more tears, no more sickness, no more death, no more loss, where there'll be unity between all peoples, as we're in right relationship with each other because of our right relationship to the Father, right? We're looking forward to that day. So what's in the way of us getting there? What's in the way of us getting to that day that we dream about and that we talk about, especially in church world, so much? What's in the way of us getting there? Now, February is Black History Month. It's a time that we kind of set aside as a country to recognize uh, the many African Americans who've persevered and pushed through often difficult uh, circumstances to make a way in this country for themselves, for their families, for others who would come after them. And in the process of doing that, they've made massively uh, significant contributions to our society, to who we are as a people and as a country today. And then just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Um, if you didn't know that, that's why your kids had an extra day off of school. But MLK was one of the most influential African Americans ever, right? And actually more than that. I mean, Dr. King is undoubtedly one of the most important figures in American history, period. Right? And that's because of his contribution toward the civil rights movement and all that he did there. And among his many famous speeches and his essays and his letters, uh, his most famous is likely the speech that he entitled, I Have a Dream, which he delivered in 1963 in Washington, D.C. at the March for Jobs and Freedom. And there, in front of thousands of people, he delivered these iconic words, some of which you probably remember and have heard. But he says, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice and sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. 
And I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And it went on. It went further, of course. So what is it that stood in the way of Martin Luther King's dream becoming a reality? What stood in the way of that dream becoming a reality? Well, it's probably many things, but it all had to do with the injustices that the majority white population was willing to continue to live with. Right? It all had to do with the injustices that the majority white population was willing to just continue living with. Like, sure, there were some people who recognized the oppression that existed. There were some people who recognized that there was injustices that were taking place. They agreed that things needed to change, but there wasn't much urgency to change them. I think that maybe that's because the urgent need for justice is usually only felt by those who are under the boot of the oppressor. The rest of us can feel content to just kind of wait, just wait it out. So this is what King pushed for repeatedly. Repeatedly he pushed for a sense of urgency. And when Dr. King spoke of the need for urgency, he often quoted from Amos. It's a minor prophet that we're about to dive into this morning and spend several weeks in. But he often quoted for Amos, from Amos. And in this speech, this I Have a Dream speech, he quoted from Amos 5.24. Uh, and he said this, he said, No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's Amos 5.24. And he also quoted this passage in his letter from a Birmingham jail. If you haven't read it, it's a powerful letter. And then again, King quoted this passage in Amos in an essay that he entitled, Let Justice Roll Down. And in this essay, he claimed that America could not wait to make changes until there was a consensus amongst the majority that urgency was needed, and he wrote this. He said, let justice roll down like waters in a mighty stream, said the prophet Amos. He was seeking not consensus, but the cleansing action of revolutionary change. America has made progress toward freedom, but measured against the goal, the road ahead is still long, is still hard. This could be the worst possible moment for slowing down. So what stood in the way of King's dream for this country and especially for his children. Injustice and oppression, yes, there was that. But since those things, justice and oppression, don't just fade away, they don't just go away. And because that's true, what was really needed was a personal urgency from those who have the privilege and ability to, to affect change. What was really needed was an urgency from those who had the ability to like, affect change that would produce a revolution in our country, right? You might be like, so what? What are we talking about? So what? We're kind of over that anyways, right? That was years ago. Well, sure, I would say, like he said in his essay, there's been some progress, but I wouldn't say that we've arrived yet. Or maybe you might say, like, that's great, but what, what does it matter for this morning? Why does this have any place in a Sunday morning worship gathering in a church? Well, check out what the verse before the often quoted Amos 5.24 says in verses uh, 5.23. Let's read 5.23 and 5.24 together in the book of Amos. If you're turning there, it's a very tiny book. It's right after Joel, somewhere after Psalms. Good luck. It's before the New Testament. 
Psalm, I mean, Psalm. Amos 5, 23 through 24. God speaks through his prophet, and this is what he says to his people in Israel. Take away from me the noise of your songs, and to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So whatever this is about, it relates to our worship. It relates to our being able to please God in our worship. Perhaps it's to the extent that justice like rolls out through our worship to benefit and lift up the weak and the oppressed and the poor that we have actually that we have actually experienced the victory of Christ over sin and idolatry that has had rule in our hearts. Perhaps what rolls out from us exposes what's actually growing within. So, what's going on in the book of Amos? Who is this dude? What's this book all about? Well, let's take a look. You can turn to chapter 1. We find out in the first verse who Amos is and the setting for the book. In Amos 1.1, it just says this. It says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So Amos' ministry takes place in the days of uh, Uzziah, who's the king of Judah. That's the southern uh, country. And uh, Jeroboam, this is probably Jeroboam the second uh, king of Israel, the same king we read about uh, that Jonah uh, took place in as well. As you may recall, uh, from our time in Jonah, we talked a little bit about it. God's people are no longer one nation, right? But they're two. There's Judah in the south, and there's Israel to the north. And Amos is a shepherd in Tekoa. And Tekoa is like a small uh, town just about 10 or so miles south of Jerusalem in Judah. And in that place, in Tekoa, there was a military like fortification there. It was meant to help protect uh, the southern uh, parts of Judah. What we might want to know is that Amos is not a prophet by trade, as we might think of a lot of Old Testament prophets. This isn't like his full-time job. It's not the thing that he does, uh, but uh, he's a shepherd. He's a shepherd. He's probably a manager of shepherds based on the original language used, but, but for whatever reason, I mean, he's a shepherd, and God, God calls the shepherd from southern Judah to travel north to Israel, to another country, and be a mouthpiece for God probably also good to know like what Israel was like at this time. Israel was enjoying a time of prosperity, kind of actually sort of a golden age. The Assyrians, one of their longtime enemies, was kind of like in a downturn and in a downtime and distracted with some other things. The Syrians aren't the threat that they used to be, and there's, like, uh, there's foreign trade going on. They have rest from their enemies, and people are getting wealthy, building big business, and building houses, big houses, right? Now, before this time, uh, when, the kings had, when the kingdoms had originally split, Jeroboam the uh, first, you know, had to build some new. He built some new temples. He built temples in Dan, in the city of Dan, in the city of Bethel, because Jerusalem's in Judah, and so Israel didn't have a place to go to worship, and so he built these two new places to go to worship, Dan and Bethel, and then uh, and then also, so Dan and Bethel, that's kind of like the center places of worship in this uh, context in Samaria was the capital, it's kind of like the political center of Israel. And throughout the years, 
as they built these other temples. Even in the time of Solomon, Solomon started marrying wives from other nations and started building temples for their gods. And it just kind of kept going downhill. They kept building temples for other people's gods. And then these new kings set up new places of worship. And they married foreign people. And they built temples for their gods. And the people slowly but surely turned to the gods of other nations and started worshiping them. And eventually God's prophets and God's priests were actually replaced by the priests and the prophets of other gods, of the Baals. And many of the prophets and the priests of God and his people were actually killed by the kings of Israel and Judah. So during the time that Amos, this is all to kind of give us a picture, during the time that Amos travels from south of Judah to Israel, now there's not exactly the same threat that there was before. He's probably not going to get killed, but things haven't really changed all that much. much. There has been like some progress in that area, but there are still unresolved issues. And so Amos like steps into a foreign land to speak for God to a culture that he's not a part of, and to a people who are likely reluctant to listen to him as a prophet of God. And all this takes place about two years before an earthquake that he'll end up predicting in this book. And he begins his speech with what is kind of known as an oracle of war. Okay? So he likely, like, like I said, Tekoa was like a military town, basically. And uh, they got a fortification there. And so he'd likely have been familiar with these oracles of war from being in that place and hearing them. This is the type of speech that was used by the military to sort of like rouse their soldiers, to get their people excited, to get them ready for battle, right? And so they would list the reasons for the enemy uh, that the enemy had, had it coming, right? They would list why they were going out to war against these people. Then they would declare how they themselves are righteous for going out to battle, right? And declare how they will be victorious and how God is on their side to make sure that they are victorious. This is how the oracle of war would kind of work. So Israel would be familiar with this type of speech. As they, they've likely, uh, and they probably would have been likely uh, excited to even hear uh, the oracle of war as, as Amos began to preach. And so he gets going. Amos 1, 2 through 5. And he said this as he invokes God as the ultimate speaker. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord. And it begins. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel and I shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. So Amos has the listener's attention. He has the listener's attention already because they would recognize that this is an oracle of war, right? It's that kind of speech. And that it was coming from God, whom they still worshipped, at least in some sort of formality, right? And they would know the history of God helping Israel fight and defeat their enemies. Not only that, but he started out this oracle war by talking about this oracle of war by talking about their neighbors in Damascus, whom they're not happy with. So good riddance to, to Damascus. But Amos is just getting started and he set up some rhythms, right? He set up some rhythms in this first part. And we're not going to read the whole first two chapters, but we're going to see, if you read through there, you'll see these same rhythms throughout. He sets something up. He starts out by saying 
for three transgressions and for four. Like where God punished Damascus. Meaning they've continually transgressed, right? This is a pattern of transgression. It's not fading away. It's getting stronger. And then he names their rebellious acts. He says, it's for the threshing of Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now that's some of their own people. So the crowd could likely feel the desire to set things right because of what Damascus has done in the past. And then Amos declares what the punishment will look like. He says, basically, that God's going to burn some stuff down. He's going to burn it down and he's going to take their leader out. And the crowd, likely in Samaria, in the political center of uh, Israel, probably cheers at the prophecy and at the oracle of war and the oracle of God going to war against Damascus. They're probably saying or thinking like, hey, this, this guy's okay. I know he's from South Judah, but, uh, but he's okay. He can stay. He's on our side. He sees well. We like, we like what he has to say, right? He's going to take out Damascus. So Amos got him. He's going to continue. So in verse 6, he says, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. And the crowd's like, yeah, away with Gaza. <laughs> then verse 9, I assume that's what they said. Probably not like that because of the English. But Then verse 9, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Then in verse 11, he just keeps it coming, right? For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. No question about it. The Ammonites have done undeniably unjust, horrid, brutal things to advance their borders. They've allied with Israel's enemies in the past. And they are brutal, so burn them down. Take them out. Now with each of these oracles of war, the transgression is named, the promise is made that the leader will be defeated. And Amos' audience is all in because they're all against all these people. But they're a little bit blind to Amos' tactic. With the first four enemies that Amos has mentioned already, he's sort of drawn an X over Israel geographically. I just kind of think of this in terms of the south because we're not all familiar with the geography of Israel, right? But just imagine that Israel is Tennessee. <coughs> That'll work, right? That's Tennessee. And basically he just said, we're gonna take, God's going to take out Virginia and he's going to take out Alabama. Boom! Then he's going to take out Kentucky and he's going to take out Florida. It's probably because of football. But... He's going to take out Kentucky, then he's going to take out Florida. Boom, and he just drew an X over Tennessee. And now when Amos like, mentions the Ammonites, what he's really doing is he's starting to creep in on them, kind of unaware, almost like a little spiraling in on them from the rest of the neighboring countries. It's like South Carolina, Georgia, I'm coming at you, Tennessee, right? That's basically the idea. So he goes after Moab. Then, I, then Amos moves to Judah. That's his own people, showing that Amos isn't even blind to his own, own country's failures. But that's not his point. God sent him to Israel, and he has them on the line, and he's reeling them in. And this is about there. He says this in chapter 2. We're jumping over to chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He's talking about Judah. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. It's starting to get a little bit more personal. 
and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And now is the time. Now is the time. This is when the oracle of war should change its tone. The crowd would be anticipating it. Like he's covered all their enemies on every side. They've all been mentioned. It's time to declare that the victory will be won by Israel and that God is on their side. But Amos turns it on their head. And he continues, but now he squarely aims at his audience and at Israel. And those little short things that he just did, man, it gets a lot longer. So let's look. Chapter 2, verse 6 through 16. He aims right at Israel. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites, Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? He's not done. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. See, where God, through Amos, had already charged all of Israel's neighbors with a particular transgression, with a particular injustice. He charges Israel with a great deal more. Like they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, meaning like for the smallest debt owed to them, they are selling their own people into slavery. They trample the head of the poor into the sand and turn from the afflicted. In other words, they use the poor. And they walk all over them. They're setting up title pawn shops in low-income neighborhoods to get rich, and they refuse to help those who are afflicted, something like that. Now, these minor prophets, you're going to see, we're going to continue to go through them for a while, so they don't pull any punches. And Amos says, that a man and his son, they go into the same girl, and that this profanes God's holy name. This isn't just about a man and his son having sexual relationships with the same woman, though. It's likely them using their power and their influence to 
use a servant, the servant women as they pleased, even illegally or whatever. They, they worked their way around it by using their power and their influence. And this is really, it's about perversion, but it's about even more than that. It's about oppression still. And Amos goes on, they lay themselves down on altars, on garments that they've taken and pledged. Like it was the law that somebody who owed somebody something else, like if, if somebody owed you, you could take like their very last belonging as a pledge. So you could take their outer garment as a pledge and hold that in keeping until they paid you. But it was also the law that you would have to give it back to them at night so that they could, so that they could stay warm. And they're neglecting to do that. And not only that, they're flaunting the thing that they're holding over these people's heads. He also says that, their drink, that they drink the wine of those who have been fined in the house of their God. In other words, they make drink offerings with things that they've taken from those that they are keeping under their oppressive thumb. Their offerings that they're giving to God are actually the product of their injustices and of their oppression. It's different, but it would be kind of like trying to please God by giving your tithes and offering on your meth money, you know? Like, keep that <laughs> and go make things right. And then after, like, indicting them with these many acts of injustice that take place amongst them and that profane the, the name of God, Amos then reminds them of their identity. As he goes back to how God has acted on their behalf in the past, he reminds them how God defeated the Amorites before them, and it was God who freed them from the oppressive rule of Egypt. And as one commentator writes, he says this, he said, these events were at the heart of Israel's identity. They were the people of God powerfully delivered from Egypt. Their oppressive power over others was not a key to their success. God's grace provided for all their needs, and oppressors are the enemy of God. Their victories are a result of God's mercy. Their victories are a result of God's grace and his opposition to the oppressors of this world. Because God, as we saw in Jonah over the last few weeks, God is just, God is gracious, God is merciful. And those who gain power through oppression do not reflect the power and the heart of our God. Israel has clearly forgotten who they are. They have clearly forgotten whose they are and where they came from. And Amos is here to tell them that their neighbor, yes, their neighbors are all sinful, but Israel is much worse off because they've known God in his mercy. They've known God in his grace and in his patience and his love and his kindness, and yet they have rejected him and they have chosen to play the role of the oppressor. And they too will see God's anger as it burns towards those who oppress others. The oppressed have become the oppressor. And God's anger is burning towards them. The injustices, the injustices that they actively partic participate in have exposed the condition of their heart. That they are not set on God, but on the sin, but on sin and on idolatry, right? And what's true for them is true for us still. The injustices that we participate in expose the condition of our hearts. The injustices that we participate in expose the condition of our hearts. 
So as we get going in Amos this morning, the question is, could the message of Amos creep up and accuse us as well? As we gather to worship our God together, proclaiming how Jesus has set us free, are we also guilty of playing the oppressor? Could Amos accuse you? Could he accuse us? Like I said at the beginning, Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. And a major thing that stood in the way of that dream was the lack of urgency from those who could make a difference. Because the urgent need for justice is usually only felt by those who are under the boot of the oppressor. The rest of us can feel content to just sit it out and wait. But injustice and oppression, they just don't fade away. You can't wait it out. They have to be defeated. There must be a revolution that flips what's upside down back to the right side up again. And Amos came to town because it was time for God to talk to his people about justice. It wasn't just going to go away. God had demonstrated that he was a just God and that he opposed the oppressor before. And they had seen this truth about him and he would do it again in the future. But Israel would be justly punished. Amos is already talking about it here. This oracle of a war is against them. But also in the end, we'll see. There's hope. There's a hope of restoration and of being justified by God who is just. And ultimately, Amos, as we go through this book, we'll see ultimately he'll he'll prophesy, prophesy the punishment, but he will also point to Jesus who would demonstrate God's character perfectly and provide for restoration. We see this in Romans 23 through 26. It says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. See, the victory of Jesus is about the justice of God. It was to demonstrate that God is just and that he could remain just even in his justifying those who had been unrighteous and who had practice injustice. And the victory that we have in Jesus is declared in how that justice that we've received from the justifier, Jesus Christ, the victory that we receive in him is declared in how that justice rolls out through our worship to benefit and to lift up the weak and to lift up the poor and to lift up the oppressed. It is in this that we demonstrate that Jesus has actual victory over the sin and the idolatry that has held our hearts and ruled over our hearts in the past. In Jonah, the series that we did in January, we saw how God is gracious and that he's merciful and he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and that he relents from disaster. And in Amos We'll see how God is truly all those things, but that he he is also just. And over the next several weeks, we'll spend some time working out like who he is and how all these character traits of his 
are meant to bear fruit in our lives so that he's made known in all the earth. So as we set out today in this book for the next several weeks, I want us to just begin considering like what behaviors, what fruit may be on the vine of our lives that does not display the victory of Jesus for others? Where might the condition of our heart be exposed to not align with a God who loves justice, who cares for the oppressed, and, is, and who is against the oppressor? And this isn't just a black and white thing either, though it certainly has something to do with how our hearts deal with the issues of race in our culture. Like, Do you have a sense of urgency regarding the injustices of racism that still exist in our culture today? Do you have a sense of urgency regarding that? And then beyond that, where do you lack urgency to stand up against other injustices? No matter how small, no matter how large, what, what places do you lack urgency to deal with that? And could you and I actually be an oppressor in some way? I think maybe a good way to start considering that is to look around at the people that are in our lives and maybe even look at the, around at the people who are in this room and in this church. Like, who's missing? Who's missing from your life? Who's missing from our church? Why are they missing? Why aren't they here? And why are we okay with it staying that way? Why are we okay with it taking forever to see progress? Why are we content to just kind of let it happen? Aren't you tired of the dream just being a dream? Aren't you a little bit tired of like the divisions in this world? Aren't you tired of looking toward a new creation with no real anticipation that it's imminent and that it's coming? Like, What if the victory that we have in Jesus actually let justice roll down through us like an ever-flowing stream? Could his will be done on earth as it is in heaven if his justice rolled down through you and me? Could unity between enemies become a reality? Could the poor prosper? Could potential wars be averted? So this morning, I just want us to consider Jesus. Like set your eyes on, on he who came to die to free you from the oppressing power of sin and death. You were oppressed by sin and death, and he came to set you free. Set your eyes on him. Remember that the punishment that we had coming to us, like that of Israel, he took upon himself so that we could live, and that we could live free from the evil that had a grip on our hearts. And prayerfully ask him, ask Jesus who forgives to lead you to increasingly submit your entire life to his empowering presence and lordship. And to help expose those areas of your heart, to help expose those areas of your life that you have not submitted to him yet, where he has not yet had victory, where you have not been able to say, Jesus has victory over this area of my life. Where is that? Ask him to help you expose that. And may we become a people who are free to shake off the role of the oppressor and a people who live with an urgency to stand up against injustice in this world, knowing that God is for us, and so no one can stand 
against us. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week, and it's a time where we can reflect and we can pray these things. You can even begin to prayerfully consider this and ask God to continue to expose things in your own heart, ask the Holy Spirit to be moving in your heart. The band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a time of uh, worship through singing, and we can sing together. Uh, There's a tithes and offering basket in the back where you can give. If you don't give in the basket because you don't carry stuff with you, that's cool. You can use your phone. There's instructions back there. You can use your computer, whatever. And then each Sunday, each Sunday at uh, Redemption Church, we come and we take communion together. So you'll come down these side aisles. There'll be people here serving the bread and the wine and the juice. And you can take the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And as we do this, we are remembering and proclaiming Jesus who gave his body, the bread, and his blood, the wine, the juice. We remember the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, that God is who he says he is, and that Jesus has proved it. And we are recipients of his grace, and he has set us free. We remember that truth, and we proclaim it to one another. So if you're a a, a Christian, if you're a believer, whether you are a member at Redemption Church or not, we invite you to come and take with us. And if you're not a believer, hear what we are saying in this action. Jesus came to prove who God is, and God is for you. He's not against you. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you so much for this this morning. Thank you for this uh, time in your scripture. God, I pray that you would expose the junk that's in our hearts. Expose the places of uh, injustice that still has a place in our hearts. Expose where we are, we are still set against you. God, I pray that you would lead us to increasingly submit our lives to Jesus. It's only through him that we have purpose. The purpose we are created for, which is to glorify you and to make you known in all the earth. Lord, in that we will be satisfied and we will have joy. I pray that you lead us to that, that you continue to lead us to give all of our life to you in order to glorify you in all things and in all places and to all people. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen.